On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. We were discussing in the first hour in our newspaper review with Lauren Boland and John Lee some of the findings of the Ireland Thinks opinion poll that's carried in today's um, Sunday Independent. Uh, there's so much to unpick in it actually that we think we might go back to it for a couple of minutes and we're going to talk to Kevin Cunningham who's the Managing Director of Ireland Thinks who's responsible for taking this poll. Um, Kevin, thanks for talking to us this lunchtime. Um, one thing that we didn't get to discuss um, with our, our newspaper panel earlier on is the question that you do periodically ask in every one of these polls uh, for the Sunday Independent which of the following issues do people think are the two most important priorities to deal with and we can see perhaps in light of some of the concerns around the house housing of refugees and some of the protests that we've seen and um, that there's been a slight increase in the number of people who think that immigration is something that the state needs to to um deal with uh, deal with is a kind yeah, of a, yeah. perhaps a slightly euphemistic uh, way of dealing with it but that's the question that you're asked and people think that immigration is a hot topic tell us more yeah it it, it is quite interesting i mean in, in the first case it's it's up to 11% this month that's an increase from 7% last month five percent the previous month and it's worth saying that immigration as an issue is quite different from other issues in terms of its ability to completely redraw the political map in lots of different countries it's something that we've seen in 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 france in in italy and right right across europe where basically populist parties have emerged and redrawn the political map but as you say it's it's increased in in the context of particularly in particularly this issue it's also noticeable that housing has also increased but it's worth saying that it's it's a very unique issue, and it's it's principally um, in the supporters of independent candidates and supporters of Aim2, uh, the small party Aim2, that are particularly most uh, interested in this issue. Where 30% of uh, independent supporters of independent candidates and and over 30% of supporters of Aim2. Uh, identify this as a particularly important issue. Okay, uh, actually I wasn't aware of that, but that's a kind of a fascinating correlation actually that it's more among into and independent supporters. Um, it, does that maybe inform the um, the analysis that you've written today in the Sunday Independent where you're talking about how uh, this is a matter which needs to be handled with care by, by some political parties because there there evidently is some, some uh, slightly partisan leaning about all of this? Yeah, I mean, I've worked for a number of centre-left parties over the years before I started the polling company, and if there's a graveyard of centre-left parties in Europe written on their tombstone would be kind of the perhaps admirable assertion that the other side are a bunch of sort of racist deplorables and that sort of thing. The the problem is that when this tactic, when this sort of issue becomes more and more salient, it just be, it just feeds further into the kind of the populist sentiment. I think... Like we only really need to look at the example of Peter Casey's uh, presidential bid not not too long ago. You know, he he came into that campaign. He was he was polling very very low. He made a, a particularly a statement around travellers, for example, uh, for which you know the entire political system basically rounded on him initially. And uh, because there is this kind of populist sentiment out there, that ended up kind of amplifying his message and amplifying. Uh, his supporters' results. So it's one of these things. While you know most people would wouldn't necessarily take the same position of uh, of people who are you know quite anti-immigrant. Uh, essentially, once once that once that particular issue becomes particularly salient, it can mm. it can become a, a dominant issue as it was. You know, it was the most important issue of course every year, almost every European country uh, in around 2015. It, mm. it is arguably the issue that fed into the rise of UKIP in the UK, which fed into the necessity from the Conservative Party on their behalf, they felt to to hold that referendum. And again, it became the dominant kind of feature of that Brexit referendum. So it, it can really run roughshod over political mm. systems. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And uh, so 
in in addressing the issue, I think yeah, political parties need to be kind of a bit more careful about what actually happens when the salience of immigration increases. Uh, if you think there is that sort of a, a latent anti-establishment electorate, uh, as was identified by um, the votes that Peter Casey got, I think if memory serves, something in the region of, of 27 or 28 percent of that vote for the uh, the Oris in, in 2018. Um, why do you think that doesn't manifest itself in support for um, any outsider political parties, if you like? Why do you think that there is still such such support for the big three, uh, as it were? Or do you think that independents in their way are the, are the channel for that? that kind of uh, sentiment? Yeah, there's probably two things, and it's worth bearing in mind, Ireland is virtually unique in not having a significant far-right party. Lithuania is another country for which there isn't. Uh, Romania was a country for which there wasn't until relatively recently. The the reason here, I think, is because we also uniquely have very significant numbers of successful independent candidates. Pretty much no electoral system has the same number of elected independents. I think the independents effectively serve to disorganise what would otherwise be a significant far-right uh, vote uh, in Ireland. And because we allow independence into the party system, it kind of buffers the system a little bit from the emergence of a far-right party. Uh, a second thing also is, you know, our electoral system is a preferential system. Uh, we have PR, obviously, like lots of other countries, but we have a voting system where, you know, you issue your first, second, and third preferences. And what that ends up doing is through, you know, secondary transfers, which you, which you know a lot about, Gav, as well, it kind of forces a moderation of par- in, in, within the party system and incentivizes parties to want to get support from people who might not otherwise like them. And so those sorts of systems do tend to pun- punish uh, kind of more extreme political parties. So mm. that, that's a kind of a second thing, but it's probably secondary to the role of independence in being able to disaggregate and disorganize what would otherwise be uh, you know, probably you'd guess at least kind of five or six percent size mm. party um, uh, supporting a kind of far right anti-immigration party. Um, the other major topic which has risen in terms of the prominence that it has in your regular questioning is housing. And maybe that is a, a more diplomatic way of dealing with some of the same concerns. But 61 percent of people say now that housing is among the top two issues that should be a priority for a government to deal with. That's up 10 points in the last month alone. Um, given that, are you surprised that the, uh, the the parties that are currently in government, that the Greens and Fianna Fáil are unchanged in this poll and that Fine Gael is actually up two points considering the number of people who would consider the current government to be responsible for the housing morass? Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting point. Uh, if we were digging into exactly who identifies different issues, what, what I've been struck by is that the people who are principally concerned with housing doesn't necessarily concentrate entirely on uh, support for Sinn Féin. In fact, Sinn Féin do relatively well amongst people who are concerned with the cost of living. Um, the housing issue itself, as you say, has increased. It, I kind of sometimes think of housing as the uh, the kind of, I don't know, Manchester City, let's say, in a Premier League uh, example of, of issues. It's basically the default issue, if, if nothing else is emerging. Or since, I think, 2017, it's basically been the number one or two issue. Mm. Um, obviously, as you say, it's fed into support for Sinn Féin over time. It's probably, as you say, I would probably agree that it might be the more diplomatic uh, way of, of addressing this kind of immigration issue. And it is interesting that both basically increase at the same time. But yeah, housing, housing is always going to be this dominant issue uh, as long as it hasn't been solved. I mean, as I said, one of the interesting things about the Irish political system has been, you know, if you look at the Eurobarometer um, uh, equivalent of this question, Ireland has a uniquely high number of people who talk about housing. Uh, and a uniquely low number of people who talk about immigration. But that seems to be changing in other countries Mm. where now more people in other countries are talking about housing 
and now obviously more people in Ireland are also talking about uh, immigration mm. as well. Uh, fascinating stuff as ever, Kevin. Thanks very much for your time this lunchtime. It's Kevin Cunningham, who's the Managing Thanks, Director man. of Ireland Thinks. He's also a lecturer in politics at the Technological University in Dublin, and he is responsible uh, for carrying out that poll, which you'll see today in today's uh, Sunday Independent. Uh, speaking of polls and uh, what people say at the ballot box, it's also been a fascinating week, although it may have gone under your radar, um, in the north of England, in one of those so-called uh, red wall seats that the Conservatives won in their breakthrough uh, election under Boris Johnson in 2019, um, in which it all seems to be uh, crumbling just a little bit. Let's catch up with George Parker, who's the political editor of the Financial Times. Uh, George, thanks for talking to us again. Good to catch up with you. Um, this is a by-election which probably would have gone under the radar, possibly for a lot of political watchers in Britain, let alone uh, elsewhere. Um, but this by-election in the city of Chester, it was a seat that Labour already held, but it was Rishi Sunak's first electoral test as Conservative leader, and it didn't go too well. No, it didn't. I mean, Labour romped to a victory. Um, the Conservative Party knew it was a no-hoper. They barely bothered to send any cabinet ministers to campaign up there. And the winning Labour candidate, Samantha Dixon, won with a 61% vote share. And that represented a 13% swing from the Tories, which, if repeated nationally, would basically give Labour a majority in the next parliament. So not a great night for Rishi Sunak, as, as you say, in his first electoral test as Prime Minister. Um, there's the fact that they, you, you could almost argue it's chicken and egg, but that did they do so badly because they didn't bother sending any heavyweights up there to canvas for their, their candidate, Liz Wardlaw, or it, did they already know that it was uh, hiding to nothing and that they weren't going to waste their minister's time going up there to canvas? Yeah, I mean, it was the, the latter, really. I mean, there was, there was no way they could have held on to that seat. Um, you know, if you think about some of the recent Conservative by-election defeats, in seats that they held. So, for example, last year, Tiverton and Honiton, a seat they had a 20,000 majority and they lost to the Liberal Democrats. So they're being pummeled whenever there's a chance for voters to go to the ballot box at the moment. They're hammering the Tories. So the idea of sending cabinet ministers up to waste their time campaigning in a no-win seat would have been a waste of time. So, yeah, it's um, it's interesting because Chester is a, you know, it's a, it's a sort of relatively prosperous middle-class seat. And it's... You know, it's not the same as some of the northern seats that the Tories won at the last election, sort of working class towns. Chester's a place with a cathedral and, um, you know, sort of it's a, it's a county town sort of place. Mm. And I think that's the worry for the Tories is they're, they're losing those kinds of seats to Labour, um, sort of with quite a large professional class. But also, according to the opinion polls, they're also, going, they're also facing massive losses in those working class northern towns in the Red Wall that they won last time. So they're suffering on a number of different fronts at the moment. Mm. Um, it is worth maybe reflecting, and again, this is maybe into the weeds for, for most um, casual viewers, but it's worth remembering why the by-election was triggered in the first place because the outgoing MP, who was a Labour MP, Christian Matheson, uh, was found guilty of serious sexual misconduct towards a junior member of his staff. He was facing a four-week suspension from the Commons and decided to resign just to avert that. You would think that that would have been something of a gift to the Tories, but yet even when you have a Labour MP who's resigning in something of a disgrace, the party's still coming away with an even bigger share of the vote than it already had. Yeah, look, I mean, the Conservative Party at the moment are on their knees electorally. And as you say, almost a, a, a by-election triggered by almost ima- any imaginable set of circumstances, I think the Conservative Party would struggle to win. I mean, in Chester, the vote share was 60% to Labour and 22% to the Conservatives, which gives you a, an idea of the scale of the of the defeat. So, look, I mean, Rishi Sunak's um, strategy at the moment is to accept that they're going to get hammered. Um, it's, it's almost like the political equivalent of pulling your pulling your head under the duvet and and <laughs> hoping hoping no one notices for a couple of months because it's going to be a really tough winter in the UK. We've got a winter of you know rising energy prices, as you know, public mm. sector strikes, a whole range of problems, inflation. Uh, Rishi Sunak is hoping to somehow get through this winter and then 
sort of move on to the front foot you know, yeah. with some sort of growth strategy in the spring. Yeah. Um, speaking of a growth strategy, um, th- this brings me on to another uh, issue, which is that the the spate of um, of Tory MPs, uh, most notably Sajid Javid, who have announced that they're not going to contest the next election. Um, it, it's worth re- recalling, by the way, that five months ago Sajid Javid was running to become prime minister, and now he's already <laughs> announced that he's not even going to bother uh, contesting a seat next time around. Um, why is it that the Conservatives have asked all of their incumbents to make this call early as to whether they are going to sit it out? Is it so that they can put two years of resources behind the, their next generation of candidates and hope to to mitigate the losses? Or, or, or what exactly is behind this whole plan? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, the timing is strange, as you say. The explanation they give is that there's a boundary review coming up, which will change the layout of constituency. So they want to know who's going to be available as they hand out the new seats to you know existing MPs. It's always a pretty sensitive operation. So if people are going to stand down, that helps to, helps to clarify that. The downside of it, of course, is you give the impression of rats leaving a sinking ship two years out from an election. Um, and you also end up with a, a sort of a group of MPs who have already checked out mentally, uh, who over the next two years will be very hard to control. Hmm. And if you're facing a potentially rebellious party, that's not great. Yeah, because it seems like a, sort of the law of unintended consequences, that if you do decide to force everyone to make their calling, you've got a load of maybe red wall Tories who suddenly have decided, well, I know my goose is cooked, so I'm not going to bother my backside running again next time, that you then you you have this large bulk of MPs in a, a parliament in which the Tories have a comfortable enough majority, but it's getting slimmer all the time. And you think that you could do you could do better than simply to disaffect dozens of them who now have no loyalty to you and no real reason to, to show you loyalty for the, the remainder of their time in there. Exactly. And also the other thing it sort of, it does, it sort of advertises um, to the broader public a sense of drift and a sense of decay in government when you start to get large numbers of MPs saying they're throwing in the towel. So there's a discipline problem, but there's also a kind of atmospherics problem as well. I mean, to be fair, you know, you always get this, of course, you know, people retire, people decide they've had enough. People like Sajid Javid decide they're not going to become prime minister and they've got the chance to go and make millions of pounds working in the city of London, which is what I'm sure Sajid Javid will end mm. up doing. Um, but it just contributes to a sense of, of drift and, and decay, really. And you know, it feels to me a bit like the, the, the days of the John Major government back in the 1990s when they've been in power for an awfully long time. You just got the sense in the mm. end that people were losing the will to fight on. Just this kind of sense of inevitability about it all. Um, mm. Final question before I let you go, George, because um, just to bring matters slightly closer to where we are right now, um, we still are, are waiting for exact clarity on when the next um, Northern Irish uh, Assembly elections are going to be. They were deferred by the Northern Secretary to potentially buy some more time for there to be a protocol breakthrough. Um, how likely is that? I, I know it's it's hardly been uh, at the top of the news agenda. Maybe there's this sense that they're in the tunnel and that they're working on some sort of practical breakthrough on the protocol. Um, you might think that the deferral of the northern elections until the new year might have been a sign that there was a breakthrough in the offing. Do you get any sense from either Westminster or Brussels that there might be something on the way? When I speak to people about this, they are downbeat on the prospects of any kind of major breakthrough before Christmas. Um, and I think time's running out for that. As you say, I'm not quite sure that we're in the famous tunnel yet where the real negotiations mm. are done. I think we're more sort of people, negotiators circling each other. What is certainly true is the atmospherics have improved massively. And you do speak to people who sound much more positive, even confident in some cases, that there can be a breakthrough on this um, early in 2023. And of course, the thing that focus, that's focusing everyone's minds is this 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement next Easter mm. and the prospects of Joe Biden coming over, doing a photo call in Belfast, no doubt coming to Dublin as well, and then ending up with a state visit to London. So that's, that is something which everybody is focused on. And behind the scenes, I'm told, 
the Americans are bringing pressure to bear, not just on the British government, but also in Brussels on the European Commission on both sides, essentially to try and get a breakthrough on this sort of vexatious, long-running saga. Uh, People might wonder, by the way, why is the US so invested in it? But having gone over there for a few St. Patrick's Days, you become very aware very quickly that it's it's one of the Americans' last great successful examples of nation building, of them getting Mm. involved in something overseas and and why they then see it as a victory and why they want to make sure that it does stay working um, in the long term. Because they don't have many other examples of being able to engineer something Mm. like that. Um, George, thanks very much for for your insight and analysis and all of that. That's George Parker, who's the political editor of the Financial Times, checking in with us from London. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.